This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? An extra, extra special guest, tour de force presentation from Professor Jeremy Siegel. You know him from all his books, Stocks from the Long Run, Wisdom Tree, Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. Siegel holds court and explains to us exactly what's been going on in the stock market, in the bond market, what's going to happen in inflation, why the 60-40 portfolio is dead, and why you should have a little bit of gold in your long-term investments. You know, I've spoken to Professor Siegel numerous times before. He's been on the show previously. He's just a delight. He's so knowledgeable. You could understand why he is frequently voted favorite professor at University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School. He, he, I'm just going to stop gushing and say, with no further ado, my conversation with Jeremy Siegel. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Professor Jeremy Siegel. He is the Russell E. Palmer Professor of Finance at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of numerous books, probably most famously Stocks for the Long Run, which is now in its fifth edition. He is frequently voted favorite professor at Wharton. Jeremy Siegel, welcome to Masters in Business. Thank you, Barry. Happy to be with you today. Right. Glad to have you back. Last time we were here, we were discussing something completely different. Today, obviously, the pandemic, the lockdown has caused all sorts of economic changes. How do you see what's going on today impacting the market and the macro economy? Yeah, and this is important. As you know, Barry, my background is got a PhD in economics with a specialty in monetary theory and policy. I went into finance afterwards because it was an interest, but actually my training was uh, money, debt, Federal Reserve behavior, and all the rest. And uh, very early on in March, when the pandemic was raging and markets were tanking, I looked at what was going on, and I said to myself, wow, um, we've had unprecedented stimulus by the Federal Reserve. But this is what's very, very important um, uh, in, in terms of shaping how I look at what our future is going to be uh, macroeconomically. And then we can take a look at the structures of, of uh, which industries are going to do better. Before the financial crisis of 2007-8, banks held zero excess reserves. They were tight against the limits, and it was very little. By the way, we're talking, you know, about $50 billion reserves. They basically went. The crisis basically said, hey, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> and because of requirements and on all the rest, the Fed started expanding its balance sheet hugely. But almost all the expansion of the balance sheet went into excess reserves held by the banks. They didn't lend it out. Mm-hmm. In other words, there was very little increase in what we would consider uh, the traditional monetary statistics, M1, M2, um, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. The big difference this time is not only has there been an, an, a huge increase in the balance sheet again of the Fed, but to a much greater extent, this money is going right into checking accounts, right into transactions accounts, right into payroll accounts, right into the bank accounts of individuals, of businesses, in a way that I have never seen before. And I'm a, I'm a historian of monetary statistics. Now, I brought up just a moment ago M1, M2. They're not talked about very much anymore, but when I was going through school, they were like things you looked at when we were having big inflation. M1 is basically all transactions accounts that are held by people. They're debit accounts. They're checking accounts. They're used to be called now accounts. They're transactions accounts. And it also includes all the currency outstanding, but that's a pretty stable amount. Those accounts are, are very, very uh, important. Those accounts in the eight weeks after the virus hit, 
from the middle of March, the next eight weeks, increased by almost 25%. I had never seen that before. In the entire year that followed the Lehman crisis, the increase in the M1 money supply was 15 to 20%. And that took wow. a year. That's amazing. So, yeah. so let me ask you the other side of that question. The Fed obviously cut rates to zero. They injected $3 trillion in liquidity. But we also saw on the fiscal side $3 trillion in stimulus passed by Congress. Yes. How impactful was the combination of fiscal plus monetary stimulus? Huge. Absolutely huge. You know, I, I, I was privileged. You know, my first teaching job after I got my Ph.D. was at the University of Chicago, and I was, I was uh, as we talked about earlier, a colleague of Milton Friedman. And um, I remember, you know, him saying to me, he said, you know, excess reserves are good. You know, it's good stimulus for the economy. But if those excess reserves get pushed in either M1 or M2, they're going to be far more potent. Far more important, and that is exactly what is happening this time that did not happen last time. And I think that as we get therapeutics, vaccines, as our economy opens up, this liquidity that is in this economy, the Fed's not going to get rid of it. I mean, they're basically committed to zero rates, and the government's not going to put a tax increase on to absorb all this. I think we're going to have a huge spending boom next year. And Hmm. I think for the first time, and I know this is a sharp minority view here, uh, for the first time in over two decades, uh, we're going to see inflation. That has been uh, a bugaboo for a while. We've seen more people start to talk about that. Mm -hmm. We're recording this Tuesday, May 16th. What did you make of the May retail sales report? Yeah, up seventeen percent, right? And Again, that follows part of that liquidity. Hey, you know, how many people got you know with all those canceled planes? So they all got credited. <laughs> They're checking. I've had people tell me for the first time they have credit balances on checking. Savings rate is what double digits now for the first yeah, time in uh, how long? Well, you know, about three weeks ago, Brian Moynihan, you know, had a BOA. Uh, he was there and he said. Our small, we've seen a 20% increase in people's checking accounts. These are small people. These are are people that had less than $5,000. He said, compared to last time, we've never seen such an increase. I mean, it it, it was extraordinary. Now, again, we can't, most people don't want to travel now. Restaurants are just very beginning to open. All this is suppressed purchasing power. My feeling is this is exactly what the stock market sees, and that's why I turned very bullish really late in March and never wavered from that, despite what was going on in terms of the shutdowns and and all the rest. And I remain firm. Also, I made the call in, in April. I said that the low bond rate that we saw, the 10-year bond in, in March, mm-hmm. is going to be... Well, the lowest in our lifetime, it end, it's going to end the 40-year bull market in bonds. Uh, I made some very bold calls. <laughs> um, and, and so far, so good. So far, I, in so fact, good. You know, I've, in I've fact, also learned <laughs> one's got to, uh, you know, be modest. Um, you know, things start going your way, and you think you're a genius <laughs> until they don't. <laughs> well, well, Mr. Market <laughs> but, is very good but, at, but, at uh, disabusing us. I, I think that... That we're going to look back, all of us are going to look back at 2020 and say, "Wow, we those that was the low of interest rates, not for a decade, a generation, and maybe forever." Wow, uh, that's quite that's quite the forecast right yeah, there. Yeah, generational, if not eternal. Bond lows. Yeah. Well, I don't know any that's going to be around eternally. <laughs> maybe, maybe even humankind won't be around there. But, you know, in summary, this huge amount of debt and money and liquidity is yeah, – Barry, let me tell you a really interesting story, which I've told to non-experts. They say, I, that, that they say it really helps them to understand what's going on. Everyone, you know, had talked about the last pandemic, 19 
1919. And everyone, of course, now knows the story that it was worse than in the city of Philadelphia, where I'm now sitting right here right. <laughs> talking to you. I live right in the city. We all know that the pandemic exploded because there was a bond sale, a liberty bond for World War One, because the government had to raise money, and they didn't call off, and that's how we raised money. Back then, we raised money because the government had to have bond sales. We had a Federal Reserve, but you know why the Fed couldn't buy those bonds? Because we were on a gold standard that said, you can't buy uh-huh. bonds unless you've got a gold to back up every dollar. So the Fed said, nope, sorry, I can't buy your bonds. I'd love to help. You've got to sell them to the public. Now, what's the difference today? Well, we didn't have $3 trillion, the fight, the war against COVID. Did you see any bond sales? Did you see any, you know, calls to patriotism, buy COVID bonds so we can fight this epidemic and keep people, uh, income and food and all the rest? You didn't see a one. Not only did you not see one, you saw the government cut taxes by over a trillion dollars to get even less revenue. And why is that possible? Because the Federal Reserve bought all those bonds. All right. That's quite... Yeah. That's quite fascinating. Yeah, but that history is critical because, to make the long story short, and people say, well, just a minute, who is paying for this war on the COVID-19? And I say, you don't see it now, but it's going to be the bondholder. Let's talk a little bit about the stock market today. We have, it's hard to avoid noticing, the big keep getting bigger, the FANG stocks are really beating everything else, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, Google, Microsoft, the giant tech companies seem to be dominating. What's it going to take for the rest of the market to catch up to the giant tech companies? Well, I don't know if they're ever going to catch up all the way. But obviously, as, as the economy opens up, as therapeutics and and or vaccines get developed that reduce that fear, you will see the so-called cyclical economy-sensitive stocks do better, clearly. But that all said, in the big macro picture, this pandemic just made a huge shift uh, to showing how much, as a society, we rely on technology and how technology actually... Uh, has made out some outcomes better uh, than if uh, we could wave a magic wand and the virus disappears and we could go back to the old ways. But, but, hey, why should we? You know, why why shouldn't we not have a Zoom meeting? Isn't it it better than uh, uh, simpler and easier? Yeah, I could, you know, go down to the office and and have that meeting. And in some cases, I may really have to. But for many meetings, I don't have to. Do I need to take that business travel? I mean, uh, I mean, all this accelerated, this, this, this shocked us into a new mode that things that some things are just better it's not just the the virus so in some ways and the market has recognized that that's why you know basically the the fang did better now the fang also did better because we had to rely on the technology i mean it was good it was good for their business thing that will really derail fang um, in a way, and uh, yeah, honestly, I think it's it's antitrust, government action, etc., one way or another. Uh, again, I think the whole market is going to do well. As I said, you know, the, the feeding of the liquidity in, and I think we're going to snap back. But, you know, and I think relatively during this snapback, you know, the FANG will tend to lag. But, it, you know, when we look at relative FANG tech, in let's say the end of 2021, we have everything else relative to now. They're 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 going to be they're going to be um, up. Now they're already up, but there's this is a this is a step function that gave them a huge boost, which um, 
in a way, you know, I, I, I don't see it easily de- derailed. So given all that, what did you make of the, the violent move in March? It was the fastest drop down 30%. March was one of the 20 worst months in market history. Why did we have such a violent overreaction? What, what was yeah. the market seeing then? You know, it was a reaction from, oh, this is just a virus in China, to, oh, my God, this could be the pandemic of 1918. And it went from complacency to panic, and it it went to panic also because uh, we weren't, we had suddenly run out of sanitizer, we ran out of masks. We got terrible advice from the CDC, in my opinion, terrible advice terrible preparation and all of a sudden it was like you're on your own and then the government's panicked and i think the close downs and the, and the way it was done was extremely destructive uh, in the way that it was done done on and the pendulum just swung the other way and the market just absolutely tanked with it um, so i'm going to guess i'm going to guess given what you said about the combination of fiscal and monetary stimulus and how it all found its way into m1 and m2 you probably weren't surprised that the market began to recover, but this has been like a two-month, 40-something percent snapback. Did the speed and strength of this recovery surprise you? Well, it's very interesting, you know, you ask that. When, before the March 14th, and I call that weekend the crash weekend, I think we all have stories right. where all of a sudden it started developing everything and things closed down. And but, but things were getting a little dicey, and the market had a couple spills in February. And I was on all the media, and I was asked about, oh, my God, you know, what will affect on the market? And I said the following. I said, stocks are the longest-term assets that we have. You know, theoretically, they go on forever, or they get absorbed by another firm that keeps on going on. If you would wipe out 100% of their earnings over the next 12 months, and then in any, you know, the, listen, I'm a professor. Any valuation model you use, how much would the stocks go down? If it's selling for a 20 PE, they should go down by 5%. So if 100% wipe out in a year, if you get back to normal in a year, and we could debate that, obviously, but at that time, you know, that was not an unreasonable and still is not. But uh, even before the Fed acted, all this, I said, if we have a terrible year that wipes out S&P earnings to zero, by the way, the current estimate is a 30% decline in S&P, but let's say, I mm-hmm. even said, let's go terrible. This is so bad, it wipes out 100% of S&P earnings. But let's assume in 2021, we get back to only 2019 levels stock market should go down five, six percent. I said that's what the math shows. That's impressive. Yeah, so and, and, really. Yeah, and, and, and actually, I said it's going to go down more because fear always drives it down more. But the theory says if you have, a, you know, a, a V that you can see coming up, and we can talk about V and W and all that, but, you know, that that, that recovery there. Uh, should not cause a 34% decline in the S&P, which, of course, happened between you know February and uh, March 23rd. Let's talk a little bit about inflation. You know, we, we've heard right after 0809 we were going to see an uptick in inflation because of all the actions of the Fed. Very famously, a bunch of conservatives and libertarians sent an open letter to Ben Bernanke, I think that was 2011, warning of uh, hyperinflation and the collapse of the dollar. Neither ever showed up. Why do you think we're going to see inflation eventually, and what does that mean for the bond market? Yeah, and that this is really important, and these distinctions are really important. Uh, you know, you have very famous people like John Taylor, who was undersecretary treasury, often mentioned to be Fed chair. You know, Powell got it, but. They came to me and said, Jeremy, you want to sign this letter? And I say, no, I'm not signing that letter. Why are you not signing that letter? The QE, we've never seen anything. Because, I said, it's going into excess reserves. I see a little bump in the money supply and that, but nothing else. 
This is all cushion around the banks. They're just not lending it. Interest rates are zero, so I don't think this is going to feed into it. So and let me stop refused, you there a sec. I, refused to, I, I, I said I'm, I'm just not signing because I just I don't think this is right. Now, so let me let me just clarify what you're saying so people understand exactly what you mean. So in 0809, the Fed introduced all of these new policies, TAMP and TARP and all these different things to help banks stabilize, deal with bad mortgages, get a lot of the junk off their books. And when they flooded the system with all this cash, the banks basically took this money, put it on their savings account, didn't lend it, didn't spend it. They just kept it there for safety reasons, and that's why you're saying we mm-hmm. never saw that uptick in inflation. Exactly. They kept it at what we call excess reserves, way above what there are mandatory requirements against accounts. They were trillions above it. And they just want, didn't want to go like what happened in 2000. They didn't want to be caught short. Everyone wanted liquidity, and the banks wanted it. The regulators wanted it. They all wanted it. It was not lent out. That's the critical difference. What I see today is it's lent out. In fact, the PPP program is go to the banks and get your loan and put in your account. You know, the, the government's cutting checks. <laughs> giving people money, putting in your account. That's the difference today. And I think that's the difference that that people didn't catch. And maybe I caught it because this is something I, this was something I had studied so intensely, intensely for years and, again, had the benefit of the great mentor, Milton Friedman, to teach me. He said excess reserves is stimulatory, and that's what the Fed should have done in the Great Depression. But more potent is if that gets pushed into M1 and M2, you're going to see a much, much stronger effect. And that is what I am seeing today. So let me ask you a related question, because I remember having conversations with you in the middle of the financial crisis on television and elsewhere. Did Congress miss the opportunity for a big fiscal stimulus in 0809? Might that have helped the recovery and perhaps avoided some of this increasing gap in income and wealth? (laughs) <laughs> that that's a good question. I mean, there are many uh, those that that thought there, you know, that we needed more push on uh, an actual tax cuts on uh, more stimulus. I mean, there was uh, a um, cash for cars, um, cash for clunkers. I remember yeah, cash that. for clunkers that did actually. That was funded, and that did cause a little bit of a spurt. One thing is very important, though, Barry. Remember what sparked the the financial crisis was, first, an oversupply of housing. Too many people got into housing and bad, you know, there was all that bad lending that enabled people with no money down uh, to get into that. So what we we had to do back in 2009 and 10 was we had to work off an, a tremendous amount of excess supply of housing. That there, there were really no excesses in terms of production before this COVID crisis. We don't have to work that out. Remember, housing starts fell to the lowest point in 70 years following the financial crisis. I don't think we're going to get very much of a fall at all now. Not only that, people's home equity was wiped out with the biggest crash in home price. We're not going to have any of that now. None of that. It's actually going the opposite direction. We're seeing home prices rise. We had impediments working out working off huge excess inventory in housing, wipe out of home equity for millions of Americans, I don't know, 10 millions of Americans, you know, soaring bankruptcies of housing. I mean, yes, we're having the business problem now, but back then we had the problem of the biggest asset is still home equity in individuals more than stocks. That was wiped out for so many people or diminished dramatically. Not today. Not So let's stay with the Fed for another moment. What do you think of Powell's actions? First, working with BlackRock, buying ETFs, and now buying specific bonds. Where does this end? Well, 
pull out all the stops. You know, just the Fed saying I'm going to do something does it. <laughs> right. You know, it's almost that, you know, if people think the Fed could do it, then all of a sudden says, I'm, I, I want the rate to be there. The market will push the rate there. So the Fed says, I want to lower spreads, which did get out of line in, in February. We do know dysfunctional markets. I'm going to make sure that, you know, they don't. Well, once they said they're going to do that, actually the spreads started going down. <laughs> and so uh, did they really need to do, you know, the announcement we saw yesterday? Eh, not really. They want, listen, they have to go through on credibility. They said they're going to do it, so they'll do a little but I, I assure you that they're going to get rid of it. You know, once things normalize, they, just like they're getting rid of the mortgage backs, they, their right. goal was to get back to an all-treasury portfolio, they're going to eventually get rid of all these, um, as they did during the financial crisis in terms of lending and all that. You know, they, got, they had other positions. Don't forget, they had an equity position in AIG. Um, Back then, I mean, so right. yeah, so so you know, I I think it's a matter of credibility. I, I said I'm going to do it. I don't really need to do it now. It doesn't really matter now. What really matters is what happened to those checking accounts. Not so the excess reserves are plentiful. If they even give another trillion excess reserves, it stays in excess reserves. Not going to do much if it gets into the pockets of individuals. That is a different story. And my final question on bonds and inflation, you recently said the 40-year bull market in bonds is over. Does that mean we're looking at a bear market in bonds? Yes. And where can, let's use a 10-year Treasury yield, where can that yield go? Are we ever going to see 5 6 7% yield on that? No, and what does that mean for inflation? Not so what what do you see happening with bonds for the, the next decade or so? Oh, I see bonds, as I say, I think this is low yield, and I see them creeping up continuously. There's still an, you know, treasuries are viewed as an excellent short-run hedge asset. They become mm -hmm. a, they, they, they cushion the portfolio. When the Dow drops 2,000, your, your treasuries are up, and people like that. So there's a huge demand for that. It's called the hedge demand, negative beta for those technicians that uh, right. that to do portfolio analysis. Um, the, but, so there's a huge demand. But with this liquidity in the economy, as we say, I expect moderate inflation. I'm, I'm not talking about hyperinflation, and so I'm nowhere near that. I expect inflation to move up next year to 2 3%, 4%, 5%, and maybe run again in 2022 the same way. So cumulatively, I expect inflation maybe to go up the price level, consumer price level to go up 10, 12 percent over the next few years, maybe 15. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, back, and don't forget, we had almost 15 percent inflation one year back in the terrible years of the late 70s. So, again, this, this is what I call moderate inflation. I expect bond yields to rise from the current half percents to one, one and a half, two, two and a half, three. They're still a great hedge, short-term hedge. Three, three and a half on treasuries, maybe four. You're going to do worse than inflation, so you're not but going to keep up on inflation. But uh, you're not and expecting, you're to, and you're going to have capital losses if you hold those long-term bonds. Huh? But you're—I don't get the sense that you're expecting the sort of persistent inflation we saw in the 1970s. Once all the stimulus, once the pig is through the python, so yeah. to speak. Everything should sort of slide back to normal, and inflation should ease. Yeah, and then let me give you just a couple of figures. You know, we talk about the three trillion dollar or whatever. You know, about that war on COVID and everything like that. Well, you know, we we have what twenty trillion dollars worth of government debt. If you have fifteen percent inflation, you wipe out three trillion dollars in revalue. So, you know, basically, you've, that's how you've paid for it. <laughs> you know, inflation is another way to tax people. It's it's, it's a tax on the bondholders. Sure. Other way is actually to tax people and maintain the bondholders. But you know, my belief is it's it's going to be the former. So basically, what what you know, with this three trillion dollars, et cetera, and so on, basically a fifteen cumulative percent. Again, this is over several years. Rate of inflation will wipe out the three trillion dollars of that excess amount and bring you back down to levels that uh, you know that you that you had before. Let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in the marketplace lately because it's been a little crazy, especially with the return of the day traders. Yeah, Robinhood does free stock trades. We've seen this become uh, a new pastime for the under-40 set, for the millennials and, and others. 
Do you see any parallels between today and 1999? Uh, not real. I mean, if you want to know the truth, I mean, don't don't forget, sports betting is, is shut down. <laughs> Where right. are they going? Oh, let's go to the stock market. Uh, casinos are just reopening. Oh, where, where can I where can I gamble? Let's go to the stock market. <laughs> I see a lot of that. I mean, so um, yeah, some hmm. of them are going to stay. Uh, but most of them are, you know, going to, you know, most of them are going to lose some money and they're going to say, hey, I'm going to go, go better on sports a bit. Pe- people who are determined to lose money gambling are going to find some outlet yeah, for it you know, one way or another. I mean, people go to casinos not only to, you know, with the hope of winning, but having fun. I mean, they're willing to lose a certain amount, you know. You know, a lot of people go and say, you know, I have, you know, 500 hours. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to have string that out as much as I can, and you'd hope, you know, that and and and, and all the rest. I mean, uh, maybe some of these day traders are also thinking in terms of that. We often, even even I and others say, hey, take take 10 percent of your portfolio, have fun, play with it, see how you do. But you know, the rest should be long term invested. So uh, you know, these Makes these sense. are players. I, I we are nowhere near. So Barry, we're really important. We're nowhere near 99. I mean, 99, uh, and and we talked about, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, uh, I mean. It was a I, national I was, pastime. I was recently, I was recently on CNBC, and I was asked, well, Dr. Siegel, you've been right, you've been bullish, but aren't you always bullish? And I didn't say it at that time because they also asked a question about, and I, I told them when I wrote my book and what I learned on stocks for the long run. Back in 2000. I remember uh, I this. One of I one of those op-eds that was one of the most read, uh, read on the Wall Street Journal, which is get out of tech stocks. I have a very vivid recollection of you writing that op. I want to say it was January or March. It was March. It was actually. It was. It was almost to the day that Nasdaq peaked at five thousand, and that was, of course, dumb luck. But I mean, it was uh, entitled "Big Cap Tech Stocks Are a Sucker's Bet," and ooh, I have I get hate mail, Barry. After that. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh how you know God. you're right when you when you get all that hate mail. That's how you know you're yeah, right. That's and, know. So you know, I, I'm not always bullish. This is important. And, and the internet stocks, of course, were crazy. But the tech. So the, the, just to give you an idea, the tech sector of the S and P 500. Now these were not internet companies. AOL was the only one that was on there and was making money back then. Then this, these are the IBMs. These are you know the Intels and and and, and the Microsofts and all the rest. The tech sector was selling for 90 times earnings. Wow. I mean, uh, what is it today, 25? I mean, you know, I don't know, 30, 20. And, and by the way, interest rates were, you know, mammothly higher than they are today. I, I remember one investor uh, said, I'm getting you out of these speculative stocks. I'm putting you uh, in IBM, which is only selling for 50 times earnings, considered a conservative <laughs> stock at that time. So anyone who com- tries to compare today with 1990 is not looking at what the valuations are. I mean, I was very cognizant that, uh, you know, I, I said there's no big cap companies. And they, they, you had these multi, today, of course, they're trillion-dollar companies, but I was looking at anything over $100 billion back then 20 years ago, and I said these, these companies are not worth 150, 200, 250 times earnings. History tells you they're, they're just not worth that. I and, recall something uh, you had said Maybe it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. But given the spike we've seen in IPOs, I have to ask you the question again. You have written IPOs typically disappoint. Mm. Do you still believe that's true? You know what? And, and, And that included that data there. IPOs have done a little better in the last 20 years. But don't forget, IPOs, there's, there's two things. There's getting it at the IPO price. Right which is almost always good, and then there's getting it when it starts trading. And that ain't so good. It's good sometimes, not good others. Right now, I think, and I'm, this is off the top of my head, but probably since the bubble, let's say from 2002, 2003, if you got it when they're first trading, you probably are still probably match the S&P maybe a little bit better. Before then, you underperformed. If you if you if you started buying them when you could, 
if you if you got them at the you know IPO, if you knew the broker and he could allocate, you did good business with him, then you were winners. Huh, quite interesting. Um, yeah. let, I mean, let me ask you this question. Things was was Google. Remember, no, no. Remember when Google went public? No one really wanted because they they refused to do a a, a road show, and so That's no one right. pushed it. <laughs> Could get it? I think what was it? Open at eighty. You know, so there have been good ones then, but those were you know there's you know up to that point it was it was a loser's game. Um, today, I would say, if you look back 15 or 20 years, even if you bought them when they first traded because they were concentrated in tech and tech did well, you probably are ahead of the S&P. Huh, pretty interesting. Let, let's stick with valuation yeah. for a minute. You have written a lot about CAPE, which was essentially the cyclically adjusted P price-to-earnings ratio created by your pal uh, Bob Schiller. Correct. What do you think of where CAPE stands today? It hasn't worked especially well no. as a timing tool. Maybe it gives you some insight into future expectations. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, and, and yeah, Bob Schiller is one of my oldest friends. Oh, no, 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 over a half a century. A great economist, won the Nobel Prize, completely deserved. His work is great. As I've mentioned before, and I think maybe in our previous one, I'm a, I wrote an article published in FAJ. I said the CAPE is giving off wrong signals now. And uh, I said it's giving off wrong signals because it uses a 10-year average of reported earnings. And back in 1999, the FASB re changed how it right. does reported earnings. And so as a result of that, it caused much more fluctuation in earnings and particularly crashed earnings during the great financial crisis and that's why it's been bearish almost every year since like 1990 so and, 93% um, of the time you know, something I, it, like it, that it is it, i said it's way too bearish and um uh, and i gave other reasons there's also a change in dividend behavior that also changes earnings growth and there's there's a, there's other problems with it so I don't think it's a great tool. However, valuation matters. And I do mm -hmm. look at what I think is normal earnings. And, and I do think that the P.E. ratio, I think a normal P.E. ratio today on normal earnings is 18 to 20. That's above the historical average. But I believe given not only low interest rates, not only that, but the ability to index and get a you know, zero-cost, totally diversified portfolio spreads risk around such uh, that uh, you know, 18 to 20, 20 is, a, is, is the new normal P.E. ratio. doesn't mean it can't go down to 15, 13, 12, and doesn't mean it won't go up to 25, 28, 30. Obviously, this year we're talking really high because earnings are going to be down 30%, but then again, they're going to be bouncing back 2021. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. Let me, let me mix it up with you a little bit with two other related questions. So I know you're not a believer in hyperinflation, but one of the things some of the, uh, let's call them inflationistas, have been worried about has been the overall level of U.S. debt. Now, annually in the trillions, the cumulative debt is about 106% of GDP. What do you think of all this debt? What does it mean for stocks? What does it mean for private capital? We used to fear crowding out. But we really haven't seen much of no, that, have we? The big increase in debt has coincided with the tremendous increase in demand for the debt as a hedge asset. The, uh, mm -hmm. Some uh, John Campbell and others, economists and others, and I, I actually was a believer in this many years ago. The biggest reason for the decline in long-term bonds, yes, is low inflation and liquidity and all sorts of and life expectancy. I mean, I can go into those. But actually, that now Treasury debt is the hedge asset of choice to cushion shocks and that. If I hold Treasury debt, it will go up when bad things happen. And that is, causes huge demand. And that, that, that's eaten up all that increase and has kept the interest rates really down. However, as I you know, said at the early part of our discussion today, this big increase in Debt and money is going to feed into inflation, moderate inflation. Um, it, you know, 
Barry, it reminds me like what happened in World War II. We got to 100% debt to GDP ratio. Um, we also increased the money supply. The Fed was back then, uh, you know, we were off the gold standard. Rosa took us out. It was buying a lot of that debt, too. There was no inflation because we were on rationing and all the rest. And then all of a sudden afterwards, we got inflation and we got a boom. And uh, right. people saying, why is this happening? And it was debt and money. And we got debt and money. And that's going to be, again, not hyperinflation. Again, I'm, I'm not predicting any, I'm not even predicting double digit. I, I'm not even predicting high single digits, although no one can be exact. But I'm predicting inflation rates that we haven't seen for several decades. And that is one of the, again, the classic reasons of, uh, well, how do you pay for the war on COVID? Well, you inflate away some of the debt that has been floated <laughs> to pay for it. So people have been fearful of deflation, a 3 to 4% inflation rate. That doesn't sound like it would be the worst thing in the world. It, it isn't. I mean, deflation is really harmful. And, uh, you know, the Fed is committed and everyone else. When we saw what happened in the 30s, that was... You know that terrible failure policy to to prevent that. If they if they just did the reserves and kept the banks alive, they would they would have prevented the deflation. We had thirty percent decline in the CPI index. Wow, between nineteen twenty nine and nineteen thirty two thirty three. I mean, it was terrible. John. Everyone with debts, and they're all denominated dollars. Just and they were unemployed. There was bankruptcies everywhere. You got to avoid that deflation. But you know what? Moderate inflation. Yeah, there'll be those that'll scream, "Hey, Fed, you're." You're not, you've got a 2% target. Why aren't you doing anything? Listen, for years, we were a little below, and now, you know, we'll go a little above. We need to absorb some of these unemployed people. There's still going to be high unemployment, by the way, even though the economy is going to be strong. Firms are permanently going to be letting off people because they're going to see that they just need less, and they're going to let that inflation rate go above target, I think, for quite a number of years. You mentioned employment and, and firms hiring what did you make of the Mays uh, employment situation report? That seemed to surprise a lot of people. BLS get it wrong, or did no. everybody else no. get it wrong? No, I mean, it's really hard to classify. And and honestly, I didn't get that excited about it. I mean, uh, you know, it's all, re all the data we're getting in is rear view mirror. Right. Yeah, yeah I mean... I, when I get up in the morning, what I do is I look at all the virus reports. I look through every country in the world. I look at the states. I see the trends. I read all the reports, and, 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 and I see what kind of reopenings. I, I look for what's happening there. That is the forward-looking. I mean, getting that confidence back, getting, getting, getting the therapeutics, getting the vaccines, that excites me. The rearview mirror... Yeah, it was better than expected. Retail sales bounced like we got today. It did surprise me, the main bounce from the April uh, crater. Um, and, and this shows that, you know, people want to get back out. If they, you know, social distance and we protect the vulnerable groups, we can do this. And then with the better treatments, the death rate is way down. The mortality rate is way down, even from people they have to go to the hospital. Yeah, no, and, we, we uh, definitely course, seem we to be... we also got this report that, <laughs> this morning about, uh, you know, the, the steroid that actually can reduce deaths by 30% of those people on ventilators. But this is just the beginning of many, many types of therapeutics that's going to reduce this death rate. And, it, you know, we get this death rate back down to what is what, what the seasonal flu, which is, you know, 0.1%, uh, maybe 03 0.4, 0.5%, certainly for the more elderly. It's still higher, maybe 1% for vulnerable. I mean, I don't know if we can get it quite that low. But if we get it close to that low, then, hey, there's no reason why we can't, you know, return to those activities. But this shock and what we've experienced uh, is not going to fade, even with all these medical advances. What what do you make of some of the increases we've seen in the Sun Belt and out west? If you look at the areas that were hardest hit first, yeah. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, back out the northeast, the rest of the country is starting to see not so much on the morbidity, but on the infection rates, 
really moving up. Florida, yeah. a- Arizona has become yeah, Arizona, really. And then the, the very recent debt again is down. This, they never, they, they caught a second wave. It's not really. It's kind of a first wave going through there. And it hits vulnerable and susceptible people really first. It's not really second wave. It first started in the Northeast. They've gone down dramatically. And I am not surprised when they opened up and, and they don't have good social distancing. But their wave um, is first wave, and it is not as severe as what our uh, – Pennsylvania actually did fairly well. We, we, if you take a look, and extremely well now. But New York, Jersey, Massachusetts were the biggest – after the biggest peaks. I don't think we're going to have that wave. Uh, and by the way, some of the very, very recent data is, is, is actually, um, again, it could change, is, is, is encouraging. Uh, that big spike over the weekend seems to be, again, we're going to have to look at that. Uh, you're going to have it. This COVID-19 is going to be in the background. It's a coronavirus. There's millions of them out there. It's going to be for years. The question is to be able to treat it to get down to levels that, hey, this is any, any other disease. My feeling is there will be no more shutdown. There will be emphasis on, on distancing. There should be enforcement because many of these states have rules about people inside wearing masks, whether they choose to enforce right. them. Well, if it spikes, you better enforce it. But you're yeah. not going to shut down the way you did back in March. I, that, there, there's no reason for that, uh, and there's no appetite for that. Well, I hope you're right about that. I have to ask you a question about colleges. You, you've been <clears throat> teaching college students for quite a long time now, and some people have come out and saying this has been a wake-up call for colleges. This will be the death knell for many second- and third-tier schools. Obviously, you teach at an Ivy League school. People like Professor Scott Galloway at NYU Stern have said a huge percentage of schools out there um, are going to see hard times and there are going to be closures. What do you think the future of education looks like post-pandemic? Well, I agree. Second and third Third and fourth tier, tier schools, and maybe even the second tier schools, are going to really have trouble. I think first tier schools are going to do fine. But you know, the, you know, the truth of the matter is that a lot of the second, third, and fourth year, third and fourth tier schools boomed because of the student loan program, right. which I think was not done correctly and burdened people too much. And uh, we won't go into it. But at that time, a lot of schools say, "Hey, I can charge tuition like Harvard." And guess what? They get the loans. And and then all of a sudden these people say, yeah, but I'm not getting the type of, uh, you know, when I when I graduate from here, I'm not getting the type of wages I can, you know, that differential I was promised that would allow me to pay it back in three or four years. There was misinformation about that. They extrapolated those from the first and second year, and then there were other problems. And so, yeah, they're going to have to reduce dramatically, and all, some of those will go out of business. I think the first year, the first tier schools are going to be as strong as ever, and I still think that people want to be on campus. The students love to be on campus. There will be distance learning. And even before COVID-19, there was a discussion of what's called the flipped classroom, which is that you would get the basic instruction online. You would come into lecture hall then ready to discuss uh, rather than uh, a standard, uh, you know, uh, learning module. I mean, that began before COVID, and it's possible that, uh, you know, the the virus will accelerate that trend. So- sounds like a much more efficient use of the professor's time. Absolutely. Don't, don't have him just tell the students something they could have read before. Yeah, I mean, I had to repeat it- myself three times. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I used to do three classes, and I had a lunch break, but... You know, and I was effective on that, and I had energy to do that. <laughs> but um, and in many ways, I said, gee, if I could record this once, and they could watch it any time they want, and we could just come in here having read it and discuss the real meaning, it would be a, it would be a more enriched experience. And, uh, again, that was, that was already beginning to be in play before COVID. Um, I think we might, uh, you know, expect that definitely to accelerate. Make, makes a lot of sense. Before we get to our speed round with our last five questions, I have one last question about stocks. 
you have said that the average real return on stocks, real total return, is about 7% per year over two centuries. Six and a half Do to you... seven is the long run average, correct. All right. So, so I know you're not a big fan of forecasts, but what do you see as the average real mm-hmm. total return of stocks for the next two centuries? Oh, less. With a 25%, less. Um, five, five and a half, maybe, real. Wow. Yeah. Quite fascinating. Yeah. I'm glad but, I, but I'm glad I, uh, about comparing that to bonds. Right. Vastly <laughs> superior to bonds. It's, it's, it's even better than compared to bonds. It's even better than when it was between six and a half and seven. Does, does that mean that the people who are using treasuries and, and high-grade corporates in their portfolio to offset the volatility of stocks should have a little more equity and a little less absolutely. bonds? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And, and in fact, you know, and, um, you know, I wanted to avoid any, I don't, I don't want to do uh, uh, wisdom tree advertising here because I, you know, want to give you economics. But I, I just want to say that we, the old 60-40 is not going to do it. 40% uh, bonds is way too much, and the returns are going to be bad. And, you know, we're now recommending 75, 25, and we think that, that the profession will evolve as a retirement portfolio towards the 75, 25 uh, proportion. So 75, 25 is the new 60, 40. Exactly. It, it's funny because in, in my shop, and I don't want to do an advertising, but we're closer to 70, 30 for what was 60, 40. Be- yep. People's lifespans are longer. You have to, it's not retire at 68 and drop dead at 72. There's an expectation that people are living into their 90s and they don't want to run out of money. Absolutely. You know, you, you know. nowadays when you reach 60, 65, I mean, many people are going to have that 30 years, you know, which stocks beat bonds and, you know, 98% of the time. So, so one last question I have to ask you related to that. We've seen a pretty substantial rally in gold over the past yeah. five years. What do you think about gold within a portfolio? Well, for the first time, we will wisdom tree, and it's part of you know. There's something called the Seagull portfolio, which we've using my recommendations have, have been. We've added some gold, um, a small a small slice, and long run, uh, because of my moderate inflationary scenario. Um, and I think that that protection, that inflation protection, I think stocks are really good as also moderate inflation, but we added gold. So, yeah, um, I, uh, and that's the first time ever that's happened, and that's just happened the last a few months. Um, and um, um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good uh, balance and will give you good returns. I'm I'm confirming my priors. We did something very similar because it was pretty clear you're not going to see the sort of return from tips and treasuries that we've seen for the past 40 years. And while while we don't think Bitcoin is an investable asset, there is something to be said for gold, at least as a as a trading vehicle. Uh, it's more it's even more than a trading vehicle now. But I uh, agree with you. I'm not a fan of Bitcoin, <clears throat> but um, I you know I have moved towards modest gold position, yes. Huh, quite fascinating. All right, so let me jump to my five favorite questions I ask all our guests. You can feel free to go as short or long as you like on any of these. And let's start with, since you've been sheltering in place and locked down at home, what are you streaming these days? Tell us what you're either watching or listening on Netflix or podcasts or, or whatever. Yeah, I mean... Well, as I said, in the morning, I get up and I actually check all COVID stories, and I, I, I look at the websites, I look at John Hopkins, I look at the world things, I check all deaths. I, I mean, I to me, I, I, I devour all that data for trends. Um, uh, I, I, I listen to Scott Gottlieb. I think he's great, and I mean, and that's uh, one of the best minds, better than Fauci, in my opinion, in terms of really understanding what's going on. Stat is a, a service that that sure, uh, yeah. That, that looks at a lot of this, um, although I don't like some of their articles seem a little slanted, but they keep keep you in the forefront there. Um, um, I, I, yeah, we, we, we got Netflix. Uh, we watched Spike Lee's uh, um, Five Bloods, the uh, new, new release yesterday. Um, uh-huh. I love it? documentaries. 
Mm-hmm. So I watch them whenever I can. And for a news, yeah, something we've done, which is, is totally unlike us, but we never, when Friday Night Lights, remember that, you know, that sure. series? Yeah. We, we never saw it when it came out. And uh, I'm kind of a bit, uh, football fan. My son is. Um, and I asked my wife, I said, would you, yeah, and she watched a few, and she said, you know, you know, I don't get the football part of it, but I like the series. So, you know, after all the bad news when you get about viruses, if it's 45 minutes, um, we watch an episode in the evening. <laughs> Not, nothing. Season, uh, what are we on now? I think we're in season three now. <laughs> no, nothing like a little pure escapism yeah, to, escapism. to help you forget the craziness. Um, you mentioned Milton Friedman. Tell us about your mentors, who influenced your career, and led you to becoming the Jeremy Siegel we know and love today. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah, Milton Friedman. I mean, I, I was at Columbia as an undergraduate, and I read Capitalism and Freedom, which I didn't know him, of course. You know, and I said, oh, my God, yeah. And, and, and then uh, when I was at MIT and I read Monetary History of the United States, which was such an influential book for me, his, his chapter, The Great Contraction, uh, which is also, you know, when, you know, he talked to Ben Bernanke, he said that chapter also influenced me so much. And, of course, he used the lessons of that chapter to save us from another Great Depression, in my opinion, in his actions uh, just 10 years ago during the financial crisis. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I, that... that that, that was unbelievable in terms of a book. And, of course, one of the things cited by the Nobel Prize Committee in giving him the Nobel Prize. So Milton Friedman, in some ways, my intellectual mentor. I mean, I think my going back is my family and my mom. She was always very academic, always stressed academics, and introduced me to the world um, and, and traveled with me at a very early age, back in the 19, early 60s around the world, which was not done back then. And it opened my eyes, and I think my interest in the world really was, is, was, was really, in, in, you know, increased during that period of time. Um, but I've had a lot of people who have, you know, been, Paul Samuelson, uh, one of my sure. advisors at MIT, and I just wrote a, an, a, a Feshrift article about his uh, works in finance, reviewing him. I mean, he's he's always been someone I've idolized as probably the best pure economist of the of the 20th century. Um, wow. Yeah. So let's. You mentioned a few books. Let's talk about what are you reading these days, and what are your favorite books uh, that you might want to recommend to listeners. Well, yeah, you know, I I tend to read. More than more than books, I do read a tremendous amount of newspapers and magazines and op eds and all that to get opinion. Um, I really enjoy Chernow's Hamilton book. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I happen to live in a high rise in Philly where I look onto the First Bank of the United States out my window, and I said, "Wow, he had the foresight to know we needed one." And then we gave it up, and we had a second bank, and we gave that up, and finally we had the Federal Reserve. Um, but you know, that's my subject matter, and um, you know, I, I, that book, his genius, I think, was was uh, uh, so important, um, and of course, it became the you know a, a Broadway hit play. Um, but um, you know, his 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 life was. Uh, definitely an inspiration. If, if you're going to recommend one Milton Friedman book to somebody who wants to learn more about his uh, writing and his philosophy, which one would you recommend? Oh, wow. There's so many, there's, there's, there's so many anthologies. I mean, there is, um, if you want to know what really changed history, what, what Bernanke acted on and prevented that, if you really, that, they've taken, the monetary history of the United States is like 800 pages. But right. there's a chapter taken out of that called The Great Contraction that went into a paperback. I don't know if it's still printed, but I probably can get it, um, which said this was their failures. We could have prevented the Great Depression, and w- the world would have changed. Yeah, in my opinion, I mean, if you go back, I mean, we could talk about that. Fascism, communism, all, all really reared their ugly head during the Great Depression because of uh, the feeling that a free market uh, economy was a failure and could never be saved. 
And I, I think uh, to appreciate that it could have been saved and how important that would have been to history and we should never forget it is, is something you should do. And, and if I recall, didn't Ben Bernanke specifically say that to Milton Friedman? Absolutely, at some... during his 90th birthday. He, he was the, you know, the uh, head of ceremonies for his mm-hmm. 90th birthday party. He stood up, and this is well before the financial crisis. Because Milton Friedman died in 2006 before the financial crisis. It was 2004. He was 90. Stood up in front of a, a group of people. I couldn't be there because of another engagement, and I kicked myself for not being there. But he said, Milton, the influence of your book, and I'm going to promise you, the Great Depression shouldn't have happened, and because of what you did and wrote, it's not going to happen again. We, we will not let it happen again. He said that in 2006 to the face of Milton Friedman, 2004, two years later, Friedman passed away. Two years later, Bernanke had to take the playbook from that mammoth monetary history and put it into effect and save us from the how, Great Depression. How, in, how incredibly prescient in, in wow. 2004. Yeah. Wow. And, and our final two questions, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who came to you and said, uh, Professor Siegel, I'm interested in a career in, in investing and equities and finance? Oh, great. Listen, whatever, everything, I, my, my advice is two things. Everyone says go into what you love, okay? But th- th- I think there's a deeper thing you should go into. Go into what you're good at, what you think, what you, when, when you're talking or thinking or reading, oh, yeah, I get that real fast. Oh, yes, I, I get that fast. Don't go into what you think you should be or someone else thinks you should be or all that. Where do your mind goes that you say, you know what, I'm pretty good at this. That's what you should pursue. That's the area you should go into. And even in the area of finance, I mean, for instance, I'm a macro guy. I look at the big picture. I'm not great at picking individual stocks. I don't try to. I'm not even a sector guy. Um, take your specialty, what you're good at, what you think well at, um, and you pursue that area. That's, that's what I tell people. Hmm, quite fascinating. And our final question, what do you know about the world of stocks and investing today that you wish you knew 50 years ago <laughs> when you were a young buck right out of school? <laughs> well, I wish I knew everything I knew in stocks for the long run <laughs> that I wrote you know, uh, first came out edition in 1994, I guess, 26 years ago. Uh, yeah, how good stocks were. Uh, they're not just speculations. They're long-term investments. Um, um, and uh, also, uh, how do you control your emotions? Um, and uh, listen, I'll tell you another thing. I think don't try to time the market, boy. Isn't that – look at all these guys. I mean – and, and, you know, a lot of people, this is really important, and I think we've talked about this before, a lot of people who mm-hmm. say, I'm only going into index, don't worry, I'm only going to But then when they only go into index and they don't pick stocks, then they go into timing. <laughs> and they actually do worse. <laughs> uh, you know, so timing is timing the market, and you can see what's happened. Um, let, let, I mean, just to end, you know, with one really important story. Someone, I, I had dinner with somebody um, the first week of March, or, um, or actually last week of February, and he said, I sold all my stocks. I, I'm out. I think this is going to be a total disaster for the economy, and um, I, don't, I don't want any part of it. And I said, well, you know, I gave my thing. Well, we had zero earnings. It's only should only four, five, six percent. I wouldn't do that. Well, afterwards, I thought, oh my God, he was really right. Well, he was right for about three weeks. Now, if he got in on March 23rd, yeah, that was great. But you know what? I, I haven't checked with him, but I know from what he was saying. I bet he didn't. And you know what? He's behind. If he had stayed in stocks, he looked for like a genius for three weeks, and now he's behind. The name of the book. The name of the book is not stocks for the next three weeks. It's stocks for the long run. Yeah, I mean, people. 
they praise, oh, my God, I got out, look at how good I was. And then you say, yeah, but did you get back in? Um, um, um. <laughs> you know what I mean, Barry? For sure, for sure. We've heard, we've heard, hey, listen, capitulation takes place when enough people dump stocks. That's how you get a low in sure. March 2020 or March 2009 or, or March, uh, well, that was the peak in March 2000. But when everybody panics and sells, that's what sets the, the base for the next move higher. That's exactly right. Thank you, Professor Siegel, for being so generous with your time. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the previous 300-plus conversations we've done over the past six years, or go to your favorite podcast uh, supplier, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever finer podcasts are, are sold, and you can find any of our prior conversations. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com you could follow me on twitter at ritholtz i would be remiss if i did not thank the crack team that helps put this conversation together each and every week michael batnick is my head of research mike boyle is my producer Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Marufal is our audio engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.